Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now then, welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you don't already subscribe, why don't you do so? That means you can get this podcast all the previous podcasts, and most importantly, the future podcasts delivered directly to your device. Talking of things that get delivered directly to you, why don't you go and check out Field & Flower too? Field & Flower are our sponsors. They've been so since day one. They've basically made everything down here possible, and all you need to do is go on their website and have a look at what they do. They provide grass-fed meat direct to your door. If you look at the boxes that they offer, the poultry box, the barbecue box, selection box for pretty much everything you could ever imagine. But if you are one of those fussy people you can just select your own box and fill it full of 170 cuts of meat and fish whatever it is that you want to put in the box you can and it'll be delivered direct to your door hopefully whilst you are listening to rugby podcasts just use our code rugby20 and sit back and wait for your delivery of delicious grass-fed meat now the podcast we have chris jones on today chris jones is the rugby correspondent for the bbc we talk widely about all sorts of things from his role in the BBC to the people he's met, uh, systemic matters in rugby, all sorts of stuff. So sit back and enjoy the podcast. So I'm here with Mr. Chris Jones. How are you, Chris? Yeah, I'm good, JB. Thanks for having me on. First and foremost, before we get into the serious stuff, how did your cricket go? Cricket? Um this is the one on Sunday. Yeah. So this was a <laughs> this was a game with like some kind of BBC past and present against some more BBC past and present, loads of ringers and stuff. And we made it almost 200 off 35 overs. We thought it was quite competitive. Sounds good. It, yeah, it was all right. And then we got three early wickets and then in strode this, this guy called, um, called Cupid uh, from St. Lucia. <laughs> and he played like Viv Richards. Made about, he made 120 off about 70 balls and our, our like motley attack was taken apart. It was good fun, but... Yeah, we uh, we felt like England in the 90s. Oh, dear. I was due to play in BT Sport versus Sky Sports. Now, I was assured that this game didn't exist. And actually what's happened is it's cloaked in secrecy. Nobody knows about it <laughs> until about two weeks before the game when they desperately try and get ringers and all sorts. And the day before, when I got my train tickets, it was all cancelled. So devastated. Did you hear about the rugby rugby media against rfu match it was in some of the papers no um so basically it was a match at about 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 a month no um, i don't know a few weeks ago anyway about a month or two ago the rfu played the rugby media now we were a bit, <laughs> we were we, we were a complete rabble we turned up like with 18 people there was not much like direction to the whole thing they were they opened up with rob andrew batting wise and rob andrew opening who Oh, played. is this cricket? It's, yeah, it's not cricket. touch. Right, yeah, okay. No, 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 not rugby, obviously. And then, then Rob Andrew opening, 
And then Eddie Jones came in at like four. Neil Hatley smashed loads. Paul Gustard hit the biggest six I've ever seen. Really? Uh, a few of the media guys were really decent. So they won. And then Jeremy Snape opening the bowling. He played 10 times for England. So basically they took it a bit more seriously than us and the result. Well, that's the thing with rugby players, particularly past rugby players, which probably came from a private school somewhere. So they played <laughs> winter doing rugby and then summer doing cricket. And they're probably damn good as well. Yeah, no, no there were a lot, a lot of the, yes, you could see that someone like, I suppose Gustard's a, you know, I don't actually discriminate between Northern and Southerners, but Gustard's a Northerner, so there's obviously, uh, there's loads of cricket up North as well. Oh, there's loads. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. York, so, uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire. I mean, if you're yeah. like from Burnley or Blackburn or somewhere. Think of, when you think of like the big, I suppose there's like Sedbas up North, isn't there? I'm trying to think if you think about the big rugby playing schools, are they predominantly in the South? I think a... the rugby playing schools are in the south, but then you've got a whole new set of problems when you go up north and you get the people that actually play rugby in state schools and cricket in state schools. Then you're into a whole new world of trouble then. Yeah, and probably play play club cricket as well. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So, Chris, for our listeners, just explain your role within the BBC. Well, I predominantly work on rugby. I actually predominantly work on radio. So I'm basically the, the BBC radio rugby reporter and commentator, but... You know, I think I think and, and as you probably know from the media now, everyone's working across loads of platforms. So people don't just stick to one area and just do radio. They also do TV. They do a bit of um, stuff for online. So basically, I, I, I kind of have I, I've got a really, really you know, lucky brief and I'm kind of um, do games on the weekend. And in the week, it's interviews and and, you know, looking at stories and things like that. So it's it's pretty cool. And the fact that we're, we're, we're all very aligned at the BBC at the moment, I'm sounding a bit corporate, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we're all quite aligned between radio, television and online. So if you kind of have an interview or you have a story, you do it across all the platforms. You'd often see like one person popping up on the radio the next minute they're on the news channel and they're writing the website piece. So I kind of do, do a lot of that stuff for rugby, which is, which is, which is great. So um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a good gig. So as a correspondent then, how much of it is your opinion on what's going on in rugby, like in egg chases when we just talk nonsense, and yeah. how much of it is actual serious reporting where you've got to fact check and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, I think because I think it's the BBC as well, um, it's got to be predominantly more of the latter. Like you, you can obviously, if, 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 you know, if you, you can put your opinion, but, but you, you know, you often have to couch it a little bit. Like if you can do an opinion, but based in with fact as well. So you could say, you know, they are not a good defensive team because they've conceded 100 tries in six games or something like that. So you can't, I mean, that's sort of a little, you can't argue with that. Um, so, and, and you know, it, it's a difficult balancing act. Yeah, so you do want to sort of have opinions mm-hmm. because that makes good radio and good TV. You know, like you like with your podcast, part of the, the appeal of it and the reason it's, it's, it's so many people love it is because you guys say what you think and, you know, a few of you have this, you know, people want debate, don't they? Like when you turn on a radio, yeah. show, you don't want everyone agreeing. So that's been a big, that's, that's what we're always trying to do, even, you know, even though the BBC, we're not going to probably have the same, you know, wild, you know, quite like strong sets of opinions that that you guys might, because you're not sort of constrained by being under a sort of an organisation. But um, equally, when we do our shows, we still want people disagreeing with each other. That's like that. That's what makes good radio. There's nothing good about five people sitting in a studio and just all nodding in agreement. So yeah, there's definitely a balancing act. But but on the whole, if you if you're gonna come up with an opinion then you probably need to have it backed up with a little bit of context or 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 fact really yeah that makes sense i mean my experience with the podcast and particularly with this podcast is it's much easier to get content out of individuals if they don't think it's on a mainstream platform 
Mm. Um, I, I don't know if you have that issue of trying to yeah, get people see, safe. I, I think, because I, I was actually speaking to a mutual friend of ours, James, about this. And people, yeah, people will say what they, in, in rugby and sport or anything, if you're interviewing a professional player and or a professional, or an administrator, they're far more, far more likely to say what they think if it's not going to be blown up into a headline. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, people, people it's, it's, if you played out 20 minutes of someone talking in context, then they probably wouldn't mind. But the headline, the headline is got to be representative of the piece, but ultimately it's trying to get people to read the piece. So often it can, it, it's just sort of praising the, it's the strongest bit in a 20 minute chat blown up. And that's mm-hmm. what I think so many, you'd often get calls from press officers or, or from people saying like, oh, can that not be the headline? Or I don't want that to be the headline. People don't mind saying what they think. They just don't want it to, they don't want it to be a headline. Because so often, unfortunately, people do see a headline and yeah. make a snap opinion. Or people see a tweet. You know, I sent out a tweet about your chat with Stephen Vaughan and a couple of people picked up on it. And, yeah, and I noticed that actually. And if they'd actually listened to what he was saying in the 10 minutes or five minutes you spoke about the salary cap, but trying to put that into 140 characters is quite difficult. So you know, that's an example of when people see a tweet or see a headline and think, oh, that's ridiculous. And people are quite in a rush to get, in, in, you know, enraged or to get uh, um, offended, aren't they? So yeah. if people see a headline, they often can just like overreact to it. So that I can say so if you, you're chatting to a player on the rugby dungeon, they're probably far more likely to say what they think because you're not going to blow it up into a headline. The danger you've got is if you've got someone from the mainstream media listening who blows it up into a headline, then yeah, that's, well, that's the problem you might have. That was quite interesting because that was in reference to the salary cap and the openness within the clubs now. So all the clubs are sharing their books and each each one of the representatives can see all the other clubs' book. I actually took what Stephen said to mean the eventual goal is to actually publish player salaries. Yeah. That, even that, though that, he hasn't actually said that, by the way. But that's yeah. what I assume the ultimate goal would be. Uh, I think, and you know, clear. I think the. I, I'm not entirely sure what the main, what the, the the opposition that would be to that would be because I don't know about you, but but in your line of work, do you know your do you know your colleagues' salaries? I imagine you. Um, I do actually. Yeah, I mean that's due to a. I don't know if I e- do an, um, an email that shouldn't have been sent. <laughs> right. So it's not actually open. But there again, there's nothing... I mean, I think with sports, it's slightly different, particularly in a career where it doesn't last too long. I think knowing the market value of what everyone else has paid is, is really, really important. And if it's in a rugby situation, I think the club should be publishing that to show the fans, A, they're spending money, and B, to the players, to know that they've got fair market value. Yeah, and, and obviously to, to make sure that it's all under the salary cap. I, I, I think it's a good concept. I do... It was interesting because we had a, a rugby show the other night with James Haskell and Jamie Roberts both in, and we got talking about players' salaries on the program. And they um, were asked, could, you know, do rugby players make enough to kind of retire for life? And they were both really, really adamant that they don't. And I just think there are probably quite a few players out there, very justifiably, who feel that even if they're making four, five hundred grand a year, their career end could end at thirty. And absolutely I, right. And, and people probably don't then take look at the whole picture people go right 500 grand a year that's you know 20 times what the average person makes that means that should set them up for an extra 20 years but clearly it doesn't quite quite work like that and you know uh, as the point Matt Dawson was making if you make a 200 grand 100 grand as a rugby player a year finding a job in the real world that gets you 100 grand a year without qualifications in that industry is pretty much impossible isn't it yeah completely if you, agreed. If you earn 100 grand in a, in a in a normal you know nine to five you've 
probably got a ten years minimum experience in that in, in that area, haven't you? So, so, so he was. It was quite a fascinating debate. But the the point the players were making is it doesn't set them up for life. And I think when we hear salaries, we obviously always need to bear that in mind that you know they've got fifty years potentially after playing. Their career is actually a small percentage of their life in the whole scheme of things, which you can probably forget because most of us be working till we're well in our seventies. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because I don't know if you ever watched it. There's a documentary out there called Broke. It's an ESPN thirty for thirty one, and it basically documents players on American sports teams and how they spend their money. And there's a list of like 10 things which players spend their money on and why they spend at the level that they do. And one of the really interesting ones was uh, players always spend, they, they never spend to the level of you know the junior wide receiver. It's always spending to the level of the £17 million a year quarterback. <laughs> always. Right, right. And then right. you've got other things like... Um, you know, cars, and it just goes on, and they're competitive, yeah. and they've got addictive personalities, and all the rest of it, and it goes on. And in America, it's a very kind of well-researched subject. Now, I went to talk to a player representative, not from Rugby Union, but from Rugby League, because Rugby League were in a situation where they felt they got very bad representation from the GMB Union. So they set up this new thing, and one of their big things was men- was mental health. And literally, this mental health thing, which is very well intended, had everything on there except for money. So it was like, get uh, get a dog, uh, look after someone else, do something nice, go for a walk, listen to classical music. And the one thing they didn't address is the fact that in three years' time, you're going to go from 70K, 70k a year to literally nothing unless you find an equivalent job. And I found it staggering that they don't factor in money at all. Well, it's, I mean, they do, but, but uh, yeah, and I, and I can't I can't speak for what the, you know, the exact intricacies of like the rpa post-playing program but yeah surely that that feeling of going from because your, your money is going to suddenly go you know you have your insurance money won't you mm. uh, if you get injured prematurely but if you just retire then that i mean th- there it's are so factors aren't there there's the losing that competitive edge losing the camaraderie of your teammates losing the 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 the, the red regimented routine losing the sense of purpose and losing the money as well i think people don't often just Make that feel often beat around the bush with money, but suddenly losing that steady income. I mean, imagine, yeah, it'd be absolutely massive, wouldn't it? And I just find it very strange that in the UK sports in particular, it just simply isn't spoken about. Football's the same. Rugby union actually is a bit better because I think that's because of the Brit. Is that the British? You know, we don't talk about money. You know, as a as a you know. A, a, well, I think in football, do, it, do they talk? Do you know when you go to the pub with your mates? Do you often talk? like openly about how much each other earns. I mean, I've got best friends who I don't know how much they earn. It's yeah, really- you talk around it, Rob. I mean, around it and then you sort of imagine, you, you, they tell you what their mortgage is and you, you divide it by five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never even thought of that, but I will do that in the future now. <laughs> and then you think, oh, he's buying it with his fiance, but she's she's just... Uh, oh, that bring- yeah, that brings down the multiple to 3.2. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, but that's the thing. I mean, in other societies, other yeah, other cultures, they might... They might just sort of just be a bit more open about it. So maybe it's a British thing, I don't well, know. Do you know what? I actually think it's an educational level thing and cue the outrage. But I think with rugby players, they've got a circle of friends and uh, confidants who are of kind of a professional sort of class. Whereas a lot of footballers don't have that. A lot of rugby league lads don't have that. So they're not surrounded by people who can manage their money and the people that step in to do so do a terrible job. So that's why I think it's more prevalent in rugby league and football than it is in rugby union. They seem to have their heads fairly well screwed on their shoulders should we say mm. and the big thing and just I know we don't to dwell on some life after rugby for players but one thing that that 
I think must be really tough is that you stay, if you're a rugby player, good, solid pro, you look at the players who've easily moved into broadcasting or into journalism, but those jobs are so few and far between. Yeah. I mean, for every Ben K, Austin Healy, Lawrence Delalio, Matt Dawson, Will Greenwood, I mean, that's, you're naming five, like, you know, all-time great England players, potentially. And so it must be, you know, jobs in the media are actually few and far between, and the media sort of shrinking in one way, expanding in the other, but I don't, there are loads and loads of jobs coming up. So that must be pretty difficult. Staying in rugby is actually probably a lot harder than it may be, you maybe uh, think it is when you're playing. Absolutely right. I think that's part of the genius of, of James Haskell, though. I mean, I've always said, like, if I was a professional sportsman, it's probably worth earning a little less for a couple of years, playing across the globe, and then at least having a bank of experience to go and tell everyone about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, I mean, Haskell, but Haskell has got, how many businesses on the go? He's got his book, he's done his... Coffee. His, yeah, his coffee, his supplements, um, his training stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's... A, and then he, he was on the show with us last Tuesday and was saying, he made a really good point. He was saying he sat with a group of England or WASP players, he didn't say which one it was, and they ordered to stand up, get to know each other kind of thing. And someone said, what do you do in your spare time? And one of them said, oh, I go for coffee with the boys. That's a lot, that's a lot of caffeine, isn't it? And if you train for four hours a day and you sleep for like eight, that means the rest of the time you're just sipping cappuccino. I mean, it, it's kind of like, and Haskell said it was quite alarming for him, who was, I think, from the age of 25, even before, being kind of thinking about life after rugby. So, you know, I think, I think that's, that's obviously a massive priority for the players' union. But um, yeah. You know the money. It's just, it's not too dissimilar to someone who can go onto the, onto the you know into a the uh, front office at a stockbroker and be earning two hundred grand at the age of twenty one, and then suddenly they burn out. And yeah, you know, I suppose it's 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 it can happen across industries and probably more prevalent in sport, isn't it? I would say so. I mean, the thing about Haskell, and I think he used to get a real unfair rep until relatively recently. I, I think the tour of Australia has completely changed everyone's mind on exactly what Haskell is. Mm. And one of the criticisms he always used to get is he doesn't take rugby seriously enough because he's got all these other things. He's selfie-stick on the World yeah. Cup pitch. He's selling coffees, selling all the rest of it. I see it as completely the opposite. Yeah, if yeah, he... it is. Yeah, and, and I remember doing an interview with him about a couple of years ago about this, and he actually said, everyone's going, oh, James Haskell... And he said, he said, I'm not taking selfies when I'm in scrummage practice. Yeah. You know? I'm, not, I'm not like doing line outs and I suddenly go to the hooker, hold on, can we just all line up and we'll put this on Instagram with a nice filter? I mean, he made the point that if he's got four hours off, he will read, he'll write, he'll do music, you know, he'll do, he'll try and, you know, work on his businesses. He won't just, you know, play on a computer game or and drink. Exactly. I'm not saying that's what all players do, but he's an example of someone who got actual stick for trying to, to, to broaden his horizons. Yeah. And, it's the old adage, isn't it? If you want something done, ask a busy man. I actually think that the dedication and motivation to do all these things is a far better character trait than being solely focused on rugby. Not 100%. I think the same with, that's probably the same with any, um, any line of work, isn't it? Moving on to another money-based thing. Do you know anything about the news coming out of London Welsh today? Yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and, and the thing is, London Welsh have completely have hardly said anything about this whole thing. So. Um, was told last week is that, that there's this this guy who is a London Welsh fan who was at the game against Rotherham on Sunday and was at the High Court today, and he runs this um, investment firm. Now I'm sort of putting two and two together, and I'm assuming it's the same organisation that London Welsh said today are the Florida-based um, investment company, but I can't say that for sure. Um, but but yeah, 
it's 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 difficult. You know, the pl- the players haven't been paid. They're like a week late with their pay now, and there was something that I read somewhere else in other places that there were problems with Old Deer Park and the lease there. But ultimately, I think that this guy has been trying to take over the club for some time, and I think it's finally getting the wheels in motion. But I'm not entirely sure. But it's the same guy who um, was at the High Court today and was at the game yesterday, and the players keep getting told about this chap called Trevor. And I don't know whether he's the same guy that also heads up this this firm they're referencing in their statements. That's all a little bit confusing. But the club on on sort of being you know they're not answering their phone or anything, so it's quite quite difficult to get any concrete information. So it's all a little bit of Chinese whispers, but that's often 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 the case. Well, it's interesting because I didn't even know they're in financial difficulty. I thought they were sitting pretty after a couple of years in the Premiership. This is the thing when the 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 problem is, and and this is why they'll be. Championship clubs are there's a massive contrast in championship clubs. So you've got some that, like Bristol, have been for seven years, are reach, trying to reach the promised land and have massive financial backing. Without Steve Lansdowne back, Steve Lansdowne's backing, who knows what would happen to Bristol? Yeah. When you, when you leave, basically, what it's become now, when you leave the Premiership umbrella, you basically leave the BT money pit. Now, BT Sport at the moment are financing a great deal of the professional game in England because the money they're paying is so much greater than any TV money that's been in the past. And then when they did the original deal in what, 2013, 14, they renewed it again, Premiership Rugby in 2015 for another six years. Mm. So, so basically, so if you aren't privy to that money, you are massively behind the eight ball as a professional team. Forget if you're Premiership or Championship, just talk about professional teams who want to be in the Premiership. And that's why there's so much talk about ring fencing and expanding the Premiership. Because there are only probably 14 or 15 clubs in the whole of the country that can, or more importantly, want to be a premiership club. And London Welsh you know, went to the promised land twice, came out, and then have been left with these wage bills for a 30, 35-man professional squad, but without those central revenues coming from sponsorship, from BT Sport, the RFU money, by all accounts, isn't, isn't big enough to sustain a club without private investments. That's why they've got this private investment in now, however... Big or small it is, we're not too sure. But without private investment, if you aren't don't have access to these big revenues, mainly from television, then you just can't sustain yourself professionally. Because where would London Welsh get the money from? Uh, yes, great question. I can only assume London Welsh are in a very privileged position because they are London Welsh. And if you look at their board, every one of them is you know a, a big time lawyer or a big time investment banker or so something. It's, so it's private money. Yeah. If you're, if you're you know, but you're Doncaster's not the same. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah, and that's what you need. You need private money. If you if you don't have, that's how Steve Lansdowne, uh, you know, and Bristol were able to to have Tom Vardell on their books and Jack Lamb and Perenice and Premiership quality players in the Championship, paying them Premiership quality money because of Steve Lansdowne. Now, without him, what are you relying on? The the the, the money from Sky Sports that goes to Championship drop in the ocean compared to BT Sports in the Premiership. The RFU money that goes into the Championship drop in the ocean compared to other revenues the Premiership teams get. So what are you relying on? Gate receipts? 1,000, 2,000 on the gate? You know, sponsorship? Not really. So a Championship club, unless they get centrally funded by the Premiership or by the RFU in the same way the LNR financed Pro D2 in France, there isn't a way for a Championship club to become a Premiership club unless they have an incredible business model based on private funding which is, is that right the french union yeah the the the, the lnr run run pro d2 that's why it's called pro so it's it's um that there's an argument that premiership rugby should should take over the running of the championship i had no but, idea about that 
But the, the difference is that the championships only got a handful of clubs that want to be professional. You know, at the, prem, at the championship, the Green King IPA launched the other day, which Tom May was hosting. I was watching it on Facebook and a couple of players came in their suits and everyone was like, why are you in a suit? They're like, well, I had to get the afternoon off work. So the championship, you've got this disconnect between a team like <laughs> Bristol and then a team who, who are in effect, you know, like a Richmond or someone who are in effect an amateur team, maybe a little bit of boot money here and there, um, and then maybe paying a few players, but rising up the ranks. And you could get to the championship going through the amateur ranks. And then suddenly you hit the championship and you're like, right, this is now a different level, one step up, and we could be completely embarrassed. And that's, you know, that's why the happiest man probably... And I, I, you know, your happiest men would be the big wigs at Premiership Rugby when Doncaster didn't beat Bristol. Because Doncaster had gone up. Uh, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah, if Doncaster had gone up, we'd have had a, we, we we almost certainly would have had a London Welsh situation, would have which would have harmed the whole integrity of the league and all the chat that about the league being competitive, no easy games, relegations, brilliant. Just goes out the window when you have a situation where a team loses 22 out of 22. See, I've got to say, relegation isn't brilliant. It's one of my biggest bugbears. You've got all these organisations. If we're to go down this year, it'll just be a travesty because they've done everything right. They've got a good team. They've got a good coaching structure. They've got a 4G pitch. They've got a lovely stadium. These are the, these are the clubs that should be staying up. They should ring fence it immediately, particularly if you're going to put it into a salary cap situation. And this is what I, was, I had coffee with a club chief executive a couple of years. Well, it's around the time when there was a lot of chat about ring fence in the premiership and the fact that they actually, they were talking about doing a deal where if you, if a club, you know, you kind of did it as a package, brushing the salary cap stuff under the carpet in exchange for ring fence in the premiership, a bit of a, you know, sort of murky business. But ultimately, it's, the, the chief exec was making the point that a bank is not going to give you Long look at you long term, like a long term five, 10 year project, 10 year loans. If you could get relegated, yeah, they're just not going to do that. So it's almost like your business becomes far more of a risk because of the promotion oh, relegation. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure I stand on it, but I, you, I can see the argument that to make a long term business plan, you need to, to, to get rid of relegation because people aren't going to lend if they know that two years in you could have one bad season and you could and, and that the bottom could fall out. Well, yeah, I guess you've got other problems as well, haven't you? Like only even distribution of clubs. You've got Sale, then you've got Newcastle, and nothing between. So I guess if you bought Leeds up, that would help things a little bit. Um, but after that, you've got this big cluster in the Midlands around London and Southwest. Is it Southwest? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, Southwest. Worcester, yeah, even Worcester, Bristol, yeah, Bath. But the North isn't really rep- represented, which is weird because most of their players are from the North. But, but then again, you've got, I mean, you've got that, that M60, is it the M62 corridor where there are about 120 Super League teams. Exactly right. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and obviously the North East, I mean, that's, that's to have one. So what's up there? I mean, there's obviously big football, Tyneside, Wearside, um, Teesside. Yeah, I, I don't know. What, what, what's the answer? Because I remember when Northampton went down, there's a bit in Martin Johnson's book when he was kind of saying, well, maybe there's only room for one club in the East Midlands if Northampton go down Ooh. because of Leicester. I know he was just, he was just sort of ruminating. Um, but then look at Northampton and Leicester now. They're both thriving. And then there's Wasps and Worcester, and everyone seems to be getting a, a slice of the pie. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know much because I was speaking, because Mike Ford was doing our commentary the other day, and I was speaking a bit about Leeds with him because his son Joe is a. Just moved is, over, isn't he? Is, is a Carnegie. And, um, I, and I was just sort of trying to work out what, what their ambition is. Are they trying to be a, a premiership side, or are they just trying to put foundations in place to make a tilt for it? You know, do they have the catchment area? Is there the player base? 
Um, I think I, I think there's definitely the player base with Leeds as a strange one because they seem to have not quite Premiership players, but players that might be a little bit too good for the Championship. You know, mm. Premier. Uh, how can I say? Guys that have been reserves like Joe Ford at sale at Premiership clubs, and they dropped down. They had Chris Jones there, didn't they? They had Dean Schofield, who's still there. So lads with experience. It, it's a hard one because they definitely aren't good enough to compete in the Premiership, but they should be top end Championship. Yeah, and then this is the this is I suppose the other argument for ring fencing. If they've got the infrastructure and the player base and the, the sponsorship and the communities to be a Premiership club, then put them in there. And give them three or four years with no relegation to see if they can get, get up there. I don't know. It, it's it's pretty. Um, it's I can see see all sides of the promotion relegation ring fencing argument. I mean, people always people always point to Exeter and go. I think people get it slightly wrong when they go. Oh, people should be allowed to do an Exeter. Exeter, <laughs> like Exeter, have you know they've got um, Southwest Telecoms is like their you know their um, their umbrella company, and to, you know that's an incredibly successful. Business. Tony Rowe is one of the richest men in the Southwest. He's the chairman and, and chief exec and sort of, um, I suppose, owner in effect of, yeah. of Exeter. Um, so they weren't, they weren't doing it, you know, all kind of, um, well, you know, old school, like clubbing together and winning rugby. No, they, they were proper. They had a great coaching team. They had a five-year plan. They had Sandy Park sold out. They had money behind them. Well, from you know, what I understand, they were spending up to the salary cap, uh, the old four million one, when they came up. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, there you go, yeah. So uh, that was some time ago. In fact, Phil, who does egg chasers, has actually played against them when he got as high as the championship and they were fully salary capped out. So it's not that they're plucky underdogs like everyone thinks. They've done amazingly well. And I, I love the strategy and everything else. But they weren't plucky underdogs. They were a fully professional side. And they more deserve credit for the way they built the business, not as opposed to sort of the way the 15 players, you know, like a kind of Mighty Duck situation against all the odds it was more the fact they they were a professional rugby club in waiting so mm. i think that's what you know there has to be an encouragement for if a team has the stadium has that all that i mean the, the, the last thing you need is when it's the championship final and you're not sure whether the team that's in the final can come up or they've got to do a ground share with the football team and that's not really going to work like we had with london welsh and oxford so it's a, it's a really it's a really it's, it's so many different strands to it um but I, I certainly see see all sides of the debate I'd get rid of promotion tomorrow and I'd have the rugby league format, although they've ditched this, of saying if you're big enough and you're good enough, we'll make it work and we can have an expansion uh, and they have licensing. But, you know, rugby league now ditched that, so maybe it isn't, yeah. it isn't the right way forward. And, and the thing is, I mean, are there many clubs outside the current 12, plus London Irish, obviously 13, you know, London Welsh at the moment, they're definitely not equipped. They play all the apart, but who knows what, what this investment will bring. And then maybe Yorkshire... So, and then can you think of another, is there another premiership club in waiting, a sleeping giant? Not really. Richmond, maybe. Someone like that. But they don't have any money. You know, they're a big name. But well, Cornish, not... Cornish Pirates, what, what, what was the, isn't Cornish Pirates were, were talking about a big, a big stadium down there? I'm not sure. But there certainly, there aren't 18 teams. So the fact is there are almost, there's, there's such a drop off. Um, and the fact that you see, you know, say Bristol last year could finish 40 points ahead of a team in fifth or something. There is such a drop-off between the top-end championship sides and the bottom end mm. that almost formalising it a bit better, it wouldn't be the worst idea. Tell me this, Chris. Does your brief extend to Wales as well? Yes, yes. So, so on the whole, so on the whole, my, my, you know, everyone's brief, I suppose, at the BBC is to cover all you know, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England. And I suppose Ireland counts, when we're talking rugby, Ireland counts as a home nation. Yeah. So 
Um, obviously, we don't do as much because there's BBC Wales, there's BBC Scotland, BBC Ulster. So, but but on the whole, like if there's a you know there's a big Welsh rugby story, or, or if in the week, say it's an England Wales week, I'd go down to Wales press conference oh, yeah. one week, England the next. So yeah, you definitely. You're definitely across across what's going on there. Ah, right. So it's not like like a scene in one of those cop films where you go over to Wales and you meet the Scrum Five guys and they say that this is their turf. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like Anchorman. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all it's all good there. Um, no, there there's some uh, they they're, they're a really good bunch. So um, I think hopefully we all we all get on well and work and obviously working together because they've got their ear to the ground far far better over there day to day than you know us guys in, in England. So well the reason i asked about the welsh coverage is i had a guy on here called garant uh, garant powell a few weeks back and after his podcast my twitter basically blew up because mm. he said a few things stood the hornet's nest and before you know it i've got lots of people contacting me about is welsh rugby sustainable is it not and it, you know it was it was a long old week on twitter <laughs> and the basic thrust of the the argument is the Welsh clubs need to join the English clubs in some sort of Anglo-Welsh league. In your discussions with everyone in English rugby and Welsh, do you detect any kind of appetite for that? Okay, I'm going to start a conversation. We might we might go off on a completely different tangent here, but at the moment that at the moment, I don't think anyone anyone can argue with the fact the English Premiership clubs are pretty happy with how things are going in the Premiership. Yeah. Agreed. You know, they, 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 if, if the Welsh regions were finishing first, second, third and fourth in the Pro 12, then and, and they were semi-finalists in the Champions Cup, then that would be, be a different matter. Now, we could debate whether the Welsh regions be properly funded for the last 15 years of professionalism or whatever. That's a, that is also an important debate to have. But then we have to get on to the... So when we talk about the global season now and we talk about, you know, all these issues in the game, the way you can almost split it is between... People say at Premiership Rugby who are self, who, who are, when I say self-interested, I mean it in the way that they should be because that's their organisation. Yeah. They're looking at their own business needs and they're looking at building their product as much as possible. Then you look at people, say, who are working for a Celtic union who want international rugby to be the pinnacle still and they need the Six Nations to be competitive. It, rugby in the Northern Hemisphere has always been played on a level playing field because of the Six Nations, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, same tournament, no handicaps. It's not like they're playing with a 10-point start. It's all the same. But if we're honest, the might of England in terms of their finances and player base dwarfs everything else. So are we moving to a situation where if English rugby ever fulfills its potential in terms of player base and achievement and, and finances, then the others just won't be able to compete. And that's that's the danger I think people are worried about. And then it comes back to, are administrators in it for the good of the game or for their own interests? And that's that's an that, that's something that I think is going to underpin the global season discussions. What is good for an, uh, someone from a union is not good for someone from a club. Now, mm. is someone from a club going to jeopardise or compromise their own str competition strength in order to help another rugby nation which is stay financially struggling now would the premiership clubs have the regions in which may compromise their league in some shape or we don't know it's hypothetical but why would they take that risk when it might not add as much as it would add to the regions you know do you know what i'm getting at so it's absolutely right yeah it's just it's just this this ideological standoff which we may have over the global season between people who are say doing it for their own interests and their interests of their clubs, their organisation, 
and put it through the interest for, for their union, which they would feel is for the good of rugby and making sure the Six Nations remains competitive, the European Cup remains competitive. And it's a very sensitive, delicate issue with everyone has got the, and just saying everyone get in a room and thrash it out is a bit, that's a little bit simplistic, isn't it? You know, because everyone's got incredibly different agendas. Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is if I was an English club or a club administrator, the last thing I would want is the mess from the Welsh regions landing on my doorstep. But until it's sorted out and you've got four competitive regions, I I simply just would not want to know. The other thing as well is I actually think being self-interested it, it works well. I think we are seeing some of the best rugby, the best coached rugby, I might add, that we've ever seen. New Zealand, obviously, are that cut above, but the English Premiership is outstanding. And you look at how they play with a smaller playing squad, a smaller salary cap than, say, the French teams, and it shows the approach is working by making the league very competitive. I suppose it's a higher standard of coaching and a higher standard of play mm. for, but much, for less how money. Much of, how much of the Premiership's charm is the intensity of every occasion. Because, you know, when I was at, in Dublin for the Pro 12 launch, there are people like Pat Lamb and Gregor Townsend who know more about rugby than, than we ever will. They are adamant that the, the actual quality of rugby in the Pro 12 is very good, or the style is very good. Teams play very good rugby. I agree what, with them, yeah. What the English Premiership has, which they've not been able to replicate in the Pro 12, bar the odd derby, is the fact that every game, or 60-70% of games, have real spikes. Friday night at Gloucester, yes, it was the opening weekend, opening weekend, it's always going to be special, but a Friday night at Gloucester is a spicy occasion. It's not at the Arms Park. Yeah. You know? and, and that's something that, that then you get into the, the hornet's nest about identity and about travelling support and all these issues that, that other, other teams and clubs face in the Pro 12. But where England are lucky is they have the, they've managed to keep their club system and to keep those fan bases in these old rugby towns and cities, and the, the the you know whether it's Northampton Saracens, Worcester against Gloucester, Bristol Bath, Exeter Saracens, you know the, the, these are, these games all have spice to them. And whether the rugby isn't that good, the atmosphere and intensity always is, which maybe maybe makes people think the rugby is that bit better than it maybe is. I'm not sure. Uh, I tend, yeah. I mean, I'm with Pat Lamb and Gregor Townsend there. The standard of rugby is extremely high if you catch it on the right day, but if you mm. catch them against Treviso, uh, or you catch them against Dragons, or Zebra, it's just no good. Uh, it, and I think that's where the intensity lacks, because you can't take a day off in the Aviva. Look at what Worcester have got in the next few few weeks. They've, they're going to have to win everything. Yeah, well, and... Bristol, Bristol have got... Yeah, well, Worcester, well, Bristol started with Harlequins, then Northampton. They've got, like, Wasp, Saracens, and Exeter, or something ludicrous <laughs> like that. There's no easy <laughs> games. There's just even the easy ones. I mean, Gloucester, you say, is an easy game, but they're not easy. No, yeah. not 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 Kingshome. No, you would you would back Gloucester Kingshome against you know they beat Saracens at Kingshome. Was it season before last? Yeah, uh, uh, so, yeah. No, you would, no, last season, yeah. last minute, James Hook. Um, I think, no, I think that, that was that was wasn't that the game that Ben Morgan broke his leg? That was no, that's the season before. Ah, oh, oh right, okay, okay. Sorry, I'm confusing two Friday night. Yeah, but last year, uh, James Hawk nailed a long-range kick to beat Saracens. Yes, yeah, I was, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And it was all set up for the, a classic sort of James Hawk moment where he had his fate in his hands and he somehow manages to throw it away. But this, this time he did it. <laughs> it, was like, it was like Paul Thorburn. It was like 70 metres out. What about... The, okay, what, so a couple of points on the Pro 12. Like, the travelling fans thing is an issue. Yes, it's, I never even thought about that until someone brought it up. That, that's, like, that's just something you can't, you can't... What can you do about that? Um... The t- second issue is the Italian teams. Got to go. Uh, yeah, and, and then we, we did a, we did a half hour on Five Live the night about the Pro 12 and the consensus from our guests was that it just when you look up and down the fixture list, 
you know, Ospreys opening up against Zebra, were they, the other night? I mean, how do you market Such that? Such a shame, isn't it? I, it, it? Yeah, and it's a shame for Italian. Right? I mean, look, maybe Conor O'Shea is going to perform a miracle, but, you know, if you speak to Italian people involved in Italian, they don't even think they should be in the Pro 12. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a difficult one. Yeah, there's no natural rivalry. There's no, there's just nothing. Uh, on the other hand, though, how are the Italian teams so bad? Is there no money there? Is there just no infrastructure? I don't understand how they've been in the competition for so long and are still so poor. Yeah, because it, what's frustrating is that you look at, say, I think it was a Zebra team, had like 10 Italian internationals. Yeah. Now, okay, so what about the argument that, that Italy should have, a, say, a club system and then one professional team, which is basically the Italian national team? But then I suppose any special Italian players like Parise or Campagnaro are going to play overseas, aren't they? I'm just trying to compare them to the, the Juárez. Yeah. Oh, and they have their one professional team. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not I, sure that's going to work, actually. I don't think the one professional team in Argentina will work. I think they're better off dispersing around the globe. And that's uh, part of their, 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 their beauty is they come together as a kind of like us against the world. And Yeah, but also they've got that diversity of experience. You know, yeah, there's a true, couple of true. guys in the Premiership. I mean, if Hakuwaras are playing badly, we don't even need to see them playing against the All Blacks because we know exactly what we're going to see and exactly what, what will happen. We saw it against the Chiefs. You know, it, it's... I don't think it's necessarily a recipe for success. Having two teams there, well, okay, now maybe we're talking, but I don't see it myself. I kind of think they've got to yeah. develop their own domestic leagues and they're going to have to develop their own their own national team that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because Paris, I did an interview with Paris, say, three, six nations ago or something, and he, mm. or two, and he said, we need to leave the Pro 12 and have an Italian league, you know? And so that's the Italian captain actually wanting out. The difference is, the, the, the problem is, is there the money, television money, private money in Italy to support a 10-team professional league. If it's an amateur league, then how are those players then going to make the step up to play in the Six Nations or in the June Tours or the Autumn Tests? So it's, again, it's a, it's, it's a pretty difficult one when it comes to the Italians. It is, but, you know, I think if you're going to use these teams in the Pro 12, and again, people get angry with me for this, I think one of the great successes of the Welsh regions, if, if there is one, is the fact that they got rid of some of their key players. They went abroad. They got big money there. Let the French teams pay them. Let the English teams pay them. And then blood the youngsters. Because of that, you'll end up with a far bigger playing pool than if you just keep all of these stars, bring them home, bankrupt the union, bankrupt the region. It makes a lot more sense for the Italians to be playing young Italian players in their league rather than ex-Australian you know, yeah, sub-grade players. That is, is there any... Is it any good for a 19-year-old budding young fly half to be losing week in, week out? I mean, is that helping his development? You know, that's, that's mm. the other side. But that's, I mean, the, the point about the Welsh, because so the, so the, obviously there's been a concerted effort from the WRU to bring Welsh players back, Jonathan Davis and, and people like that, to get them playing for a region again, which obviously is, is, is great. But then they're on dual contracts. Their minutes, their minutes playing for their region are going to be fewer. Yeah. So then, then are they... Obviously, 60% of the contract being paid by the union. So actually, the region probably doesn't feel like they're, they're being taken advantage of financially and having to pay. And, but that's a, another problem with the Pro 12 is that because there are fewer clubs in every country, say in Ireland, the Ireland national side up until the summer was split across three teams. So if you've got 30, a 30-man Six Nations squad, that's 10 per team on average. Yeah. So you're never going to get, apart from potentially Saracens, an English Premiership club losing 10 players to England so that the the pro top is much is much more seriously hit by international windows so well, then then if, if if a really good pro 12 game you know a Glasgow Leinster and a sold out RDS is one thing but then 
to lesser teams playing in the international window with internationals away, that's where the, the, the product sort of almost irreparably suffers. Yeah, or, or even worse, Glasgow. I mean, the whole Scotland team oh, yeah, and, Glasgow. And, and that was part of that, you know, they, they probably would have won the Pro 12 last season if they hadn't had to play catch-up because... I mean, literally their whole squad was at the World Cup, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but Connacht, on the other hand, loved it because they're no one. Yeah. Do, do you think Connacht are going to repeat their success from last year? No, no, definitely not. And that's not to, to, to decry what they did because they were absolutely brilliant. But they're going to have a few players having international recognition. And the, 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 win, the, the, World Cup is, the World Cup obviously affected the league far more in a World Cup year than it does, say, in this year. Um, Connacht massively capitalised on that. And on top of that, they might lose some more players this time. I can still see them making top six, but I couldn't see them winning it again. I think it'd be hard to see that. I kind of agree with you on that point. Yeah, everyone had to play catch-up. But they won two games in the playoffs against two damn good teams at full strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, No, no, that's true. And I I, I didn't mean just to sound disparaging because I don't think they're going to do anything. But I don't think they are as good as three or four teams Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the Pro 12 on any on any given day but they obviously got something going last year where they got such momentum such a good style of play their players were in such good form pat lamb is obviously a genius of a coach yeah who's to say and yeah they did they did win the playoffs when it mattered and beat two really good teams so so yeah it it wasn't a case that they won the league in the international windows because still had to do it in the playoffs well if i understand it right pat lamb has got them playing a system which is very similar to leicester now i don't know if this is correct or not because i haven't spent the time to sit down watch some tape and study it but apparently it's very similar to the New Zealand teams how they play which is spreading the forwards across the field in like a 2-4-2 formation and then relying on skill sets now Mm. if that is the case I'd be very interested to see what the Pro 12 teams do to counter this because I'd like to see it translated into a game plan to face New Zealand when they come over in the internationals I mean it's interesting because do you remember when Bath went so well and they had their system where they basically got George Ford running to the line and then he would either hit a forward up or he'd pull it behind and they would do these little triangles in midfield. Yeah. And then come the Premiership final, Saracens just completely <laughs> lined them up 
and they almost knew exactly where the ball was going and they scored like two tries on turnovers and I think they, Bath never really recovered from that did they so you, you know so on a lesser scale I wonder if Connacht getting a hammering from Glasgow on the opening weekend all it does it does all it take a couple of teams to suss you out and you lose a bit of faith in your system or I, I, I think you're exactly that's, right. I think you're that's, exactly that's right. That's what we'll have to wait and see with, with Connor. But it definitely happened to Bath. When they were hot, they were so hot. But then when their ball was a bit slow, they were, had a couple of injuries, then it all kind of started, started to break down a little bit. Yeah, I think they referred to that system as organised chaos because the idea was, to the opposition, it would look like absolute chaos. And then they'd have some preset rugby league patterns, I think, but I'm not entirely sure. England tried it before. England played a bit like that in the Six Nations in 2015. Um, inspired by well, inspired by having Ford and Joseph in the midfield. Ah, now so, is this the one where they did basically? I, I picked up on this. They did basically what looks like the same pattern every single move, and it involved uh, Watson coming off his wing. Yeah, they they but they they then went and played France away in the warm up game before the World Cup, and it didn't really work. Joseph was hit behind the game line a few times, and I just think that. They England's coaches then lost a bit of nerve in that system because they'd obviously played. They'd actually played Farrell with twelve trees and who? What, what was them? No, they played. They played Luther Burrell, didn't they, in the centre yeah. for, um, for that Six Nations in twenty fifteen with Joseph and Four. But then the autumn before, the, or the, uh, the the Six Nations before, they were playing twelve trees for a, a lot of it. But they kind of just lost a bit of a bit of confidence in playing Ford and Joseph. So then they. They fought. They dropped Ford for the uh, Wales game, and then it sort of all went from there. I didn't guess it? this is the unenvious position you find yourself as a modern uh, rugby coach now. I was talking to oh, what's his name, Andy Titrell. He came down to Broughton Park to do some line out. Afterwards, I called him, and we were talking about the different calls. And every couple of months, they completely change their calls because everyone's got it on tape, and they know exactly what you're going to do, and they notice all the different patterns and the different cues that you use in order to run your line outs. And if you've got a successful strategy as an international coach, I guess the genius of it is having a new strategy in three months' time or then reverting yeah. back to your own one. But then but then have the all blacks change strategy. They play they, they almost play like they almost don't play too dissimilar to Saracens. They box kick almost everything in their own half when the ball is slow. And then they've got sort of Dane Coles on one wing, Kira Reed on the other. They all they want is turnover ball. You know, they kind of just you saw with Saracens on the weekend. They almost like go through the motions in their own half, and then suddenly a switch flicks when they get into a twenty-two. And I almost think like the best teams in the world have this quite like territory-based game plan. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the All Blacks do mix it up, and we just don't notice it. But they just seem to constantly win games off no ball. And Saracens do that a lot. They almost just kick the ball away. Yeah, they, well, they don't want the ball in their own half. What's the point? And then they just strike when when the ball's loose. Yeah, I mean, I I, I begrudge giving them too much uh, credit because. Well, it's getting boring though. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just so good. I mean, it's, yeah. So, so, but is that is that their coaching is so good, or the, they're so well coached and the players are so good that they can just execute their game plan? I mean, they won thirty five three on the weekend or whatever it was, and they barely like they barely broke sweat, and that's on a first run out. I mean, it's quite it's quite ominous. Isn't yeah, it? and they've lost in like three hundred caps as well since the World Cup, and it, you know the list of accolades that that team goes uh, goes through. It, it just goes on and on and on. The most impressive thing, about, probably the most studied team in the world, n- not even rugby team, maybe the most studied team in the world because of their prolonged success, and mm. every other team tries to emulate them in some way, whether it be culturally or the way that they play or something, and yet. We still can't quite figure them out. It's, oh, it's the All amazing. Blacks. Sorry, I thought we were talking Saracens. But yeah, no, no, oh, well, no, no. Um, uh, sorry, the All Blacks. Yeah, th- th- yeah. See that, that. I mean, that was obviously England. That was obviously. I think 
that was a bit of England's problem under under Lancaster, wasn't it? You know, trying to trying trying to talking too much about New Zealand and saying New Zealand do this, New Zealand do that, and that's probably been one of Eddie Jones's bi biggest weapons. Has just been saying this is how England should play and this is how we're going to play and just giving a clarity. It, the thing is, it's it's almost it's twofold with New Zealand, isn't it? It's it's the the game plan and the way they're coached and the skill set, and then that is also a slope, kind of aligned but also different to the kind of slightly um, mythical, almost you know cultish, if you know what I mean. That almost came out wrong. Yeah, um, all black jersey, and well, there's no there are very few. You know, you maybe get that with a Springbok jersey, but there, there's so many more complications there. Everyone growing up wants to play for the All Blacks in society. And that's something that you just can't replicate. You can't make that happen, can you? No, well, it's kind of like the New York Yankees. You're beaten by the stripes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what if they played in white, New Zealand? Well, Do you think it makes a difference? I don't know. It just all adds to it, doesn't it? Well, they have played in white a couple of, a couple of occasions. I, I, the 07 World Cup in grey, didn't they? I, yeah, I remember the joke of the Scotland game where contractually they both had to wear their away kits and their away kits were almost identical to each other. <laughs> uh, I do remember that. It was a shambles, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned a certain Mr. Stuart Lancaster earlier on, one of my favourite topics. Gone to Leinster today. Yes. Do you understand the role that he's taken up there? Well, I think I think it's basically calling him a senior coach is trying in one job title to neither undermine him or Leo Cullen, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought because of but, even no, that, that's not that's not insulting either. It's just you, you can't. I mean, Stuart Lancaster is coached arguably has arguably had the biggest job in world rugby. Yes, um, one of the biggest jobs in world rugby. You know, whether, a New Zealand New Zealand job aside, South Africa job maybe, but. England, England national job is one of the biggest jobs in the world rugby. He's had that for four years. He's now a number two to someone who has very, very limited coaching experience and actually hasn't pulled up trees as the Leinster head coach. I think you'd have to be honest and say that. Yeah. So saying to Lancaster, right, you're now an assistant to Leo Cullen, uh, but also saying to Leo Cullen, who's, you know, Leinster through and through and is, you know, been given the task of, of rebuilding the province, having lost a load of top quality players. Um, he doesn't necessarily need someone brought in over his head, and so I, I imagine it's a, it's basically a compromise, or if you're more harsh, a fudge. Well, where does Graham Henry fit into all this, or is he He's, left now? He only did two weeks. It, was that all it was? Yeah, he only did two weeks. And what was he, the point in that then? Well, I think he's just so ridiculously revered that he can just do consultancy for two weeks, and people are like, "Yeah, we need Graham Henry," but he honestly was over there for two weeks. I mean, I don't know if he still is on the end of a Skype line once a month or something. I'm not sure about that. That's but... what I... Th uh, I understood it to be something like that. I, I noticed they got him in, like, a Leinster jacket, and that was nearly enough. But... Yeah, yeah, as long as, he's, as long as you can have a picture of him in, in some, some stash. But he... he, I think he just... He came over for two weeks, and... I mean, he obviously has, like, got an enormous amount of experience, and he probably can pick things up in two weeks. Maybe not intricacies of game plan in that time, but maybe just about, you know, your favourite word, culture, and... Yeah. You know, identity and things like that. But certainly... Um, I don't Henry's not he's not permanent or anything so they when they put their press release out today they sort of list for clarity's sake they listed the job titles and they obviously said like Gervin Dempsey and and Stuart Lancaster as senior coach and Leo Cullen but I'll be interested to see how that works I mean I think I think it's a good move for Lancaster because he's taking over a province that has dipped a little bit so there are improvements to be made you know the the the, the problem is if you say take over at Toulon just after they've won like mm. three yep. European Cups in a row and then you know Diego Dominguez can only go one way because Leinster haven't won anything for a couple of seasons. 
there are probably things Lancaster can definitely help off the pitch as well as on it. So I think it's I think it's a better move for him than maybe going to take over down in New Zealand at a provincial level where he'll be cut no slack at all. Yeah, it's I, I do wonder if it's kind of to teach Leo Cullen the you know, the more technical side of coaching, coaching processes and, and all that, because he yeah, did go straight from player to... Yeah, and, and so, so did Anthony Foley. I think, that's, I think that's been a bit of a problem with the... You know, if you look in the past, Leinster had a situation where they once had Vern Co- um, Joe Schmidt and John O'Gibbs. I mean, they, they these, you know, Munster have had some high-profile coaches, yeah. haven't they? I know they've got, they've got Razzi Erasmus now, but they did go through a spell, both Leinster and Munster, with indigenous coaches, Anthony Foley and his guys, Leo Cullen and his guys. And that's asking quite a lot of guys straight out of playing to suddenly do jobs that, you know, Joe Schmidt did after being at Claremont for how many years working with Vern Cotter. Mm, and I, yeah, and there's also, I also wonder if Lancaster will take up the defensive brief there because the guy they've lost, by all accounts, was actually the defensive coach. Yeah, he is, he is. He's, he's, he's they, they said today he's the defence guru, but he obviously will contribute to other areas as well. Uh-huh. Um, it's also interesting that Andy Farrell's the defensive <laughs> yeah. starter, isn't it? I and was if, thinking that. Imagine if, imagine if it goes brilliantly for Lancaster, and he transforms Leinster, and then he gets, you know, Schmidt leaves. He becomes the Ireland coach, and him and Farrell work together for Ireland. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think that's extremely unlikely because Ireland wouldn't want English to run on their coaching team on mass. But it's quite interesting those two are now working in the Irish setup, and it is the setup when they're all together, isn't it? They'll all be sharing ideas and stuff because. It's all under union control, so it's that kind of model. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, it wouldn't be the first time an English coach has taken over Ireland. Uh, I think was Brian Ashton Ireland coach for a little while. Was Brian Ashton Ireland coach? I'm sure he was, you know. I'm yeah, sure he was. Uh, well, Mike Ford was at Ireland. Was he? Yeah, he was defence coach in the 2000 and sort of most of the 2000s. I didn't know that. Whatever happened to Dave, El- to Dave Ellis? Because he had a big reputation in France for like 10 years. But then I've not heard a single thing from him since he left the, the you know French what, National he, Club. Uh, it's a team, okay. sorry. He's, he's definitely somewhere. Just give me five minutes and I'll, I'll, either, I'll either Google it or pretend I've remembered it. But yeah, you're right. I think Ashton was, yeah, he was national coach of Ireland from 97 to 98. So he, he did 12 months as head coach of Ireland. I didn't know he was, he was the head coach, but yes. was, where's so, Dave Ellis now? Um, or Google Dave Ellis. Um, he's definitely somewhere. As you're saying, that's a rather large job to have, head of defence for the French national team. And then I've never heard of him pretty much yeah, ever again. Because yeah, he was, when was that? Was that it was fairly recently, wasn't it? Um, I think it was Lepore. No, he's a Connacht. Is he? Yes. There he's you skills, go. Skills coach at Connacht. Yeah, well, it's, no, it says they, it says he's, I, I, that, 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 that rings a bell. He was definitely there. He was definitely there last season. I assume he still is. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a fascinating coaching appointment, which I had no idea about. But I did some research on the Newport Gwent Dragons. God knows why. I can't, can't remember. They had a coach. It's something, someone Anderson. And he has never had a job in rugby union in his life. He's rugby league through and through. He comes in. He takes Newport Gwent Dragons to number four in the table. Gets fired. And no one's ever heard of him ever since. <laughs> what was his name? Something Anderson. No, and no, I don't, I don't, I don't know. No, I, I can't remember anything about him other than he's purely Australian rugby league. Comes into Dragons, leads them to fourth, disappears. Never heard of him ever again. Do you remember that um, Bath almost appointed Steve McNamara? No, when was that? 
that was about oh, maybe two years ago. It was around the so it was when they were looking for an attack coach, and they ended up not not appointing one, or they kind of promoted from within, and then eventually brought Edwards in. But um, they definitely, Darren Edwards. Darren, they bought it was before Darren Edwards came in because he came he came from Wales, didn't he? Yeah, Darren Edwards came in, and they were they were looking for an attack coach, and Steve McNamara was definitely in the frame before he took the job a job down in Australia. See, and nowhere else. Side. The, I think the rugby league model might have run its course now, and the reason I say that is I think rugby union has surpassed league in its professionalism. In fact, I can't remember the last league crossover. Coaching, yeah. Um, uh, the sales of sale is um. Who's the who's the um, attack coach of Sale? Oh, uh, Mike Forshaw and Deacon. Yeah, Deacon. Both of those boys are rugby league. In, yeah, um, in fairness. So there you go. My point falls flat. But that was that. That's also you're, you're right. Because I think there was a, probably a stage five years ago in rugby where defence is completely ruled. Yeah, and I think that may have been because like there was some outstanding rugby league defence coaches coming in and bringing such a level of discipline and attitude about defences. And I think the last couple of years have probably seen attacks having to become more sophisticated to try and break them down. And that's why we're talking more and more, I think, about skills, because people are realising the pitch is very small, uh, the players are very big, and so you need something different. Um, if defences are so good and people are just going to be able to knock down big ball carriers, then you need to have a little bit of skill. And there's a lot more talk, I think, going around about trying to make every rugby union player better skills from 1 to 15 than maybe there was a few years ago. Do you think that is a little bit about giving the public what they want to hear? A little bit. And I think I think that... Saying that, the right thing. Yeah, yeah there, there are a lot of clubs that come out and say, we want to play a certain way. You know, every director of rugby, every new director of rugby is asked, what style do you want to play? And they always have to basically say, running rugby, don't they? Yeah. I, I, They're probably thinking, I, I don't... I mean... I, and that was part of like Eddie Jones actually did come in and say, "Well, I want a hard, I want a hard forward pack and a good set piece first and foremost," which actually was quite refreshing because he didn't want to come in and go, "I want England, I want Twickenham on their feet." He was like, "Well, Twickenham's on their feet." If they're, <laughs> I completely agree with him. I, I like, I, I would like to see more teams say, "Yeah, we just want to be really, really, really hard, and we're going to kick the ball, and we're going to have a really good kick chase, and we're yeah. going to be horrible." Because uh, <laughs> it's a real problem. It's a real problem, and you've got to solve that problem. It's just, it's just because it's, it's, about, it's a way of doing it. I mean, if you say, because Sar- Sar- no, no one would say that Saracens play a brilliant brand of rugby, but they score more. Oh, I would. I, I think they're oh, fascinating. Oh, but but when, I, I, when, I buy, when I say that, I mean, they don't, they don't spin it from everywhere. They aren't, they, they, aren't, they aren't taking risks, are they? No, they're not taking risks. But my favourite thing to watch in rugby, and this isn't any exaggeration whatsoever, is watching Saracens go through the phases in defence. And you can literally count it as one, two, three, 16, 17 phases later, and they're still doing the same thing. Both guarding, you, both bodyguarding off the line. You're the minority of a hardcore rugby fan who finds defence. Now, most people oh, like, glorious. do find it do, do find it fascinating in, in its own way. But, you know, there's a, probably, there is, as you say, a lot, there is probably a bit of pressure on teams in an attempt to grow the game and bring in a new audience. Yeah. They're all around like Super Rugby, which actually doesn't always make for an entertaining spectacle. And even though Saracens don't take risks, they do certain things incredible. They score more tries than anyone because they're incredibly ruthless. And actually, when they counterattack, 
They, they, they hardly ever put a Gary Owen up. When Alex Gu counterattacks, he always keeps the ball in hand. Yeah, that, and other teams don't do that, that. That purport to play a better, better brand of rugby. Yeah, I mean, just go back to your defensive point. Fans don't like defenses. Not to disagree with you too much, but I think two years ago, or was it three years ago, the best four minutes of rugby in the whole Six Nations was the Welsh defensive stand against Ireland. Yeah, yeah, that was quality, wasn't it? So yeah, there's a certain sort of kind of visceral quality about defence. Straight in the World it, Cup against Wales at Twickenham. Oh yes. And then, yeah, I mean that was that was that was and, and look, everyone still talks about England's six man forward effort in two thousand and three summer against New Zealand, don't they? Yeah. You know, defensive defence def- great defensive sets are a thing of beauty in its own way. But yeah, it it it's it, I think this it's an interesting one about I think a a, a club director of rugby can probably he could probably feel some pressure from externally about wanting to play a certain way. But ultimately, I think if he has a game plan that he's incredibly clear about, regardless of what it is, that's going to serve. You know, I think clarity is almost more important than what the game plan is. The fact that everyone knows exactly what it is. And yeah. so, and you can actually get your players on the same page. And the last thing is, last thing players need is not knowing how they're meant to be playing. Well, have you spent much time around the Saracens camp? Um, not, 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 nothing is in debt. I saw Steve James from the Sunday Telegraph did like a day behind the scenes. I've never done anything like that, which would be fascinating. Um, but you know, whenever you go to, whenever you go to press conferences there, that you, you always see things that make you think, oh, that now you, now you sort of, you get it and you get why, yeah. why Saracens are what they are. Well, I spoke to, I've spoken to Jack Berger a couple of times. I've interviewed him once and he gave me literally nothing he just said yeah we you know we focus on what we do and you know th- there was no microphones out it was just me and him having a coffee he didn't give me a single thing so i assumed what he said was correct i then interviewed hayden smith and hayden smith told me the complete opposite which is they yeah. get a stats pack every week they analyze the referee what his tendencies are each position group get a different slightly different stats pack it's all colored so it's easy to digest Cape, um deloitte do all the stats it's such a fascinating operation. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would think it's, it's more the latter. Um, but then, yeah, it's difficult to, to sort of. Would you say that they're sort of almost robotically drilled, or do you think they're given just enough license to when to, to be able to make decisions of their own on the pitch? I think they're both. You know, I think that they all have a structure which they stick to rigidly, and then they kind of branch out. And that's when you see that lovely flowing rugby with Alex Good and them yeah, yeah. You know, attacking the fringes. But then if it goes wrong, it's straight back to structure. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think I think, that, I think they play, you know, the way they play conditions in the Champions Cup final in Lyon against racing was just, I mean, it was so disciplined. Yeah. They played conditions perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, knowing they're coming up against the French side, we don't probably have that level of discipline. Well, also, and, without that level of preparation. I mean, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Even though the racing have got, you know, Ronnie Agara, they've got, like, quite a few people. You know, Ronnie Agara would be the man who would know how to play a wet-weather game. But I think Saracens would back their preparation over pretty much every team in the world. Do you know what Ronan Agara's role is at Racing? He does defence, yeah. Defence coach, which I, you know, I can only assume he... Um, he he's now the def- number two. He was defence, and now he's the number two. So they have the joint, they have Laurent Travers and Laurent Labitte, and he's their number two, if that makes sense, because he's kind of like their joint first. So he's actually more third. But he's sort of moved up a little bit from, he started as kind of kicking skills, then did defence, and then he's now, he still does a lot of defence, and it's kind of ironic. But It's uh, very ironic. 
<laughs> it is, it is. But then maybe, well, it's like that, you know, how the the, the, the best football manager sometimes never played the game. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, quite possibly. He's done remarkably well to, to get where he is. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I think I've got a massive amount of time for what he's done mm-hmm. to go out and to a completely, you know, well, I was going to say it's a completely foreign country. I mean, just a foreign country and a foreign language. Uh, you know, and, and it could, it's one of those tales that could be him sort of coming back after six months, tail between his legs, couldn't fit in, no one understood what he was talking about. Gary Neville pe- style. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. And that, that's someone who went over, you know, who is revered in English football. Um, so, you know, Gara's gone over. He's signed another three-year deal recently. So he'll potentially do... Oh, he? Yeah, so he's, he's there. He, he, if he does finish his contract, he'll have done like five or six years which is a pretty good stint in sort of modern professional sport. Yeah, it's brilliant. He'll almost certainly coach Ireland one day in some capacity. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe the next guy for the Munster job. Yeah, yeah, I think I, th- I think if the I- yeah, if the IRFU the, if you're the IRFU, you've got to be a bit annoyed because there's actually quite a lot of Irish coaching intellect not in Ireland. Yeah, like Mark, Mark McCall dominating at Saracens. Yeah, god, how on earth have they missed out on that? I mean, there again, when you meet Mark McCall you wouldn't assume anything of him. And he talks in whispers. But he must be a phenomenal mind. They lost him. From, so he was, at Ulster, he was at coaching at Ulster. David Humphreys was also coaching at Ulster. And they lost both of them to the Premiership. And that's kind of a little bit of the problem. They, mm. would, they would lose. If, if, unless you're, uh, if you're an ambitious young Irish coach and you've done time at a province and you get offered a DOR job, you're probably going to take it unless, you'll be, unless you think you can hold out for an Ireland job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. That, that, that's kind of the problem. If you say, you know, unless you're building a dynasty at Munster or Leinster, if you have a role at the province and you're offered that, like Humphreys had done a good stint at Ulster, got to a, a Heineken Cup final, offered the Gloucester job. I mean, that's a pretty tough gig to turn down when you've had a stint in the provinces. It goes back to the original point. Why not go out there and get your experience? Go to Gloucester, go to Saracens. Although yeah. I imagine there'd be uproar if uh, you told an Irish fan that Ireland are going to start playing like Saracens. They, but they, they, they kind of play like Saracens. Like, to say that Ireland play a great brand of rugby under Joe Schmidt's a myth. They, they kick a lot of ball. Like Conor Murray, Conor Murray is a brilliant scrum half, but he's a, and he kicks a lot of ball. But then again, a lot of teams kick a lot of ball, so don't disparage Ireland. But um, yeah, you certainly wouldn't say that Ireland have been tearing up the Six Nations. They're quite structured. That backline play with those like loop arounds that Sexton does, it's a little, you know, it's it's a little bit formulaic, isn't it? Yeah, we've seen it before. Yeah, um, but. I was going to say about Mark McCall. So we, we did a, a sit-down thing with three DORs at Twickenham at the Premiership launch, Mark McCall, Di Young and Rob Baxter. And they were all fascinating talking about like, issues. And Mark McCall made, he was, you speak to him before and after a game and he just kind of keeps his cards very close to his chest. Very, mm-hmm. very close to his chest. But talking about bigger issues in the game, Lions tours, concussion, player well, he was absolutely fascinating. I just think he's, Clearly, there are a lot of layers to him. Yeah. He's got an enormous amount of respect. He's, even though he's quite small in stature, he looks incredibly hard. Like, you would, you would, he's kind of bloke so, that you, you, you commands respect. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that he's done so well with Saracens. Who are the DOR, DORs that you've met in the Premiership that really impress you then? It's, uh, to be honest, we're, I think we're really lucky working in rugby, invariably that, you know, not want to sort of sit on the fence and say they're all great blokes, but, they're all really, they are all very approachable and pretty open and, and, and decent interviews. But who's, who's, who's really impressive? Um, 
I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. I think they're all, you know, you, um, Connor O'Shea was always great to talk to. Yeah, uh, he he comes across as very approachable too. Yeah, he's really approachable. He's he's a really he's a really good bloke. Um, David Humphrey's really approachable. Die Young, um, Richard Cockrell's always. You know, Richard Cockrell is because he's he's so passionate. Sometimes you you uh, they lost to Northampton in the uh, Premiership semi final. I think it was in 2014. First time they'd not been in the final in sort of nine or ten years. And you'd expect Cockrell to be, you know, sort of quite uh, going up to him, quite cautious, going up to interview him. And he sort of cracked a joke straight away. And, uh, and you sort of thought that was quite nice, how even though they'd just lost their bitter yeah. rivals to a last minute try and they'd lost their final. Oh, that was the Tom, um, the Tom Wood try in the corner. Yeah, yeah. on a Friday night. Brilliant yeah, game. It great was. And he, and he straight away was like, Look, no one's. Th-. And we, so a few of us went up to him and was like, oh, sorry, Richard, we have a word. And he went, come on, lads, nobody's died. It was quite like, it was quite <laughs> nice sort of. Uh, a pressure reliever. So no, I, I think in general they, you know, I think we're ridiculously lucky in rugby that the DORs are all and and we sat three of them for five live. We sat three of them round a table. Baxter McCall, Da Young spoke for forty minutes, and they were just happy really? that they'd talk about everything. And that's you know in the same way that you spoke for an hour on the podcast to Stephen Bourne. You know, can you imagine speaking to a, a, a English Premier League chief exec on the phone for for an hour? It just wouldn't happen. Well, so, yeah. I, mean, I think it's a it's a pretty from a journalist's point of view a pretty pretty good sport to cover. Have you yeah. um, have you had m- many dealings with Steve Diamond? Because I'd be fascinated to get to know more about him. Not as not to, I mean not a, gr- a great deal because um, no I suppose if we c- sale have, have sale haven't been doing as many we used to, I used to cover a lot of sale when they were doing Friday night games and I was up, I was based in Manchester yeah. Um, but they didn't. They've sort of stopped their Friday night games for a little bit, didn't they? Went to Sundays or something. Yeah, they tried to move back to traditional times, thinking to get more yeah. fans. So invariably, like their game, you know, we because we, we only cover one game on a Saturday. Just I just I just for the last year or so probably haven't done as many sale games as as other teams. But three or four years ago, I spoke to Diamond quite. I'm gonna speak to Diamond. Do you remember when Redpath was? Was it was removed and he went to head coach, didn't he? Yeah. Do you know the story behind that? In fact, no. Not do you know the story as if I know. Is there a deeper story behind that? Well, I mean, I don't know if enough water's gone under the bridge, but a, a colleague of mine had like had uncovered the story and he was told on impeccable authority that Redpath was was sacked completely as DOR, and then they kind of turned it into no, he's still here, but he's the head that he's a coach. So they kind of like. They, they almost removed him as DOR, they made him a coach, and then Diamond went from being basically chief executive to DOR. That's so Diamond, Diamond was chief exec, or he was like called something like head of sport or sporting director or something. He was, yeah. And but, then I think he was just, he probably was sitting there thinking that the sale pack, like he, he kept saying they need like a yard dog or need some, mo-. he kept saying they need a yard dog, or need, <laughs> they need some mongrel. He kept saying that, basically talking about himself. So he was going as the chief exec. Oh, I'll forward to Mongrel. And then like two weeks later, he's the DOR. Redpath then becomes head coach and they work together until Redpath left for Leeds. Um, but I mean, I do think Diamond's done a pretty phenomenal job. Yeah, because his reputation isn't particularly big outside of, well, sale, actually. It's not even that big around Manchester. But I do think he's done a great job. And he's a very intriguing character. Yeah, he is. He is. Because he, he's... he's um, He's a tough. He's he's a, he's pretty a pretty intimidating bloke. Like oh. he's one of those that after a loss, you know, there are some that you would be far more. You know, Conor O'Shea lost by sixty points at home to Exeter in the last game of the season. His last game at the Stoop, and still you knew that Conor was going to 
still be like you know stiff upper lip about it but yeah. then there are other DORs like diamond that you probably it would be a bit more a bit more sort of volatile but I, I i've always found him he's always been he always just says what he thinks diamond so he actually you know makes um makes it quite quite easy to interview him because you don't have to be around the bush much well last question before i let, let you go because we've been chatting for an hour and a quarter now um did you attend the london double header Yes, I did, yes. What do you think of this as a spectacle? Because I was under the impression it'd be a full Twickenham. It was anything but. And I kind of think, should it? Should these games not be at the club's home ground? Are they not wasting the opportunity to have a packed house at home? Yeah, they, they did a 50,000. I don't know, and I don't want to sound like a um, an apologist, but when we arrived, we thought this isn't a very good crowd. Because we did think, yeah, we thought it'd be almost sold out. You, in hindsight, if it had always been sold out, we'd have known about it, wouldn't we? Yeah. Like, Rugby would have been on Twitter saying it had been sold out. The fact that in, in hindsight, there wasn't much chat about the crowd probably should have given the game away that it wasn't going to be full. But they said 47,000. I don't know if that was for the for the second game. It's probably more for Bristol Quinns than the first. 47,000 is still twice over twice, maybe three. No, it's three times what they'd get at the stoop, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean... How many of those fans are actually Harlequins fans? I mean, actually, I don't know. Do you have to be a Harlequins fan to go to the doubleheader, or can you be a straggler from the Saracens game? And do, do, surely you have to buy two separate tickets. I don't know. I thought it was a package thing that you went there and you watched two games. That's what I understood it to be. That's why there's the attraction. But maybe I'm wrong. No, no. I, but, but I mean, I, I should have looked into that. But they that would make that would make total sense, which would then appeal to to people who are the casual fan that would like a double. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise you're gonna have to get security to sweep the place, find out all all the uh, stragglers, get them out. Get yeah, yeah, you're right, in. you're right. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're right. That just wouldn't work. And someone come, and someone's like, like I'm in 31D. And like, no, I am. Like, yeah, no, exactly. It'd be fights and all sorts. Yeah, it'd, it'd be a terrible name. No, no. So, um, yeah. So forty-seven thousand over two games was, um, yeah, maybe, maybe could could was Saracens Worcester. Yeah, you know, we know that Saracens don't have like an enormous fan base. No. You know, if it had been a, I suppose it has to have a London team in it, does it? Uh, so, well, it used to be the London doubleheader until Wasps moved away and uh, yeah, Irish yeah, so got relegated. One, they need one London team. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the point I'd, I'd make really is that Bristol came and they were saying it's great. We bought seven busloads of fans. Well, hang on, that sounds good on paper, but what's that? Fifty fans per bus. 600, 600 fans? That's not going to fill Twickenham. <laughs> no, that's going to struggle, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I kind of think they just missed that. They maybe should move it to week three so everyone can have a home game and then you can up the intensity again with, with the yeah, double header. Yeah, I, I did agree. I did. When I looked around at the start of Worcester Saracens, and maybe more people sort of filtered into the day, but at the start, I did think, you know, the top tier was completely empty. In our, we were in the West End and, or was it East End? And behind us, empty. So they almost like shut one that one tier, a couple of tiers completely. So yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I would have been better having having a, a full obviously obviously would have been better having a full house. And it was it was a smaller crowd than I expected. I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, well, Premier Rugby before have told us that there was eighteen thousand in the US game, and we got there. It's a twenty five thousand seater stadium. I can tell you there was not eighteen thousand there. What what other numbers? The Saracens game. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go to that? No, no, no! I just heard that the crowd was. Yeah, know, that, I think it was than the pretty poorly yeah. handled, actually, by the clubs involved. Not by Saracens necessarily, 
but by Premier Rugby, definitely. They they, sh- they could have filled that. You can find 25,000 people in New York wanting to watch a sport. Yeah, I uh, I don't know, because it was the same day of England-Wales, wasn't it? It was, so everyone was already in rugby mode, and England-Wales was in the morning. So it wasn't a big clash. Right, but I suppose it's in terms... I suppose I was going to say in terms of marketing it over here, but that's not going to help with selling it over there. No, no. The only thing they said is they, it did clash with St. Patrick's Day parades and stuff. So if you're Irish, you're already doing your St. Patrick's Day thing rather than going to watch, watch rugby. But they could have done better. I have no doubt about that. And also, what, what we don't... You know, because obviously what's going to be interesting with this um, USA League is the appetite for rugby in the States. Like how much of it, because they're talking about how many Google hits there were during the Olympics and how rugby's massive in the States. I'll just be really interested to see what the appetite is for, because for, I, I don't actually know. Well, I can tell you this anecdotally, that our podcasts have the second most listens in the United States. Now that might mean nothing because it's such a huge country, but it's sort of telling that it's not Australia or South Africa or somewhere. It, it It's always the United States for pretty much every, every episode. Yeah, I suppose, but it's just got like an enormous population. Like, and, and where's the next biggest population? You know, Australia, no population, New Zealand, no population. Yeah. It's going to have a huge fan base in France, are you, unless you do a translation? Well, there's also the issue as well that if you're New Zealand, Australian or... Um, South African, you've got plenty of rugby media to listen to anyway, so you don't need us. Whereas in the, in the States, you're probably going to find most of your rugby content via podcasts. Yeah, yeah, true. But, you know, the, the, there is definitely a market for it there's there. Market. Now, it's going to be fascinating to see how that develops on two fronts, the USA Pro League and obviously the Pro 12 angle as well. I don't think the Pro 12 angle will go anywhere. I, and also, would you want to buy a Pro 12 franchise purely just to fund the rest of the Pro 12? I mean, that's what you're doing. You're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. you know, I suppose the Pro 12 could say to the American, it's about American rugby. But then, how does that tie in with the American Pro League? <laughs> yeah. You basically bought this franchise. You're making a shed load of money, and you're sending it over to Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. You're basically going, let's make the Six Nations more competitive. Like, but we we don't benefit at all. We're yeah, funding, we're funding Northern Hemisphere rugby just so, from an altruistic, altruistic viewpoint. I think it's an absolute non-starter. What have you got on for the rest of the week, then, Chris? Well, um, Lions announcement on Wednesday. So going out to Edinburgh for, for that. So um, Gatland's un- unveiling. Uh, it's that. definitely Gatland. Yeah, no, it's, def- it's definitely Gatland. I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, you're a Welsh fan, aren't you? Uh, I am a Welsh fan. I love Gatland. It's fine. I mean, Jones isn't going to do it. Smith's not really the guy. Boone would be interesting. But as I mentioned on Egg Chasers, all he's really done is... A couple of his, you know, heroic losses. Handsome rabbits. Yeah. Um, why not appoint someone com- completely from outside of the the international setups? Maybe look at one of the club coaches. There again, I've not thought about it too deeply as to who. And whoever you appoint wouldn't be a big enough name, even if you appointed Mark McCall or. And they've got to take a. Year. The thing is, they've got to take a, a sabbatical. Oh yes, of course they have. So it, it's. I mean, I'm not. The, uh, it's it's Gatland. I mean Gatland, because he. He did the job, and he done Look, it, it makes total sense. It just—I just think that the makeup of his backroom staff is going to be really. I mean, I think obviously the Lions are up against it, whatever. Yeah. But who he, who he, how he he balances up his backroom staff, the mix of countries he has. Because last time he didn't even take Sean Edwards. I mean, the conspiracy no. theorists say he took Farrell so he could unlock the English defence. He admitted that. He actually, he actually did, admitted. Did he that. really? Well, I, I asked him in a press conference, have you 
No, no, he admitted it before. Because I remember after the lines, I asked him in a press conference, have you gleaned much from working with Andy Farrell? He's like, yes. So he was like, this is the eve of, Ireland, of Wales, England. But he also said, a part of me as a coach, you know, quite selfishly wants to see how Andy operated. So he kind of, <laughs> he, admit, he, he did admit that he wanted to work with someone new. Part so, of working with someone new, part getting a little bit of insight into how England defended. Oh, awesome. So it's fair to say, uh, Eddie Jones, forwards coach? Yeah, <laughs> Gustard, Borthwick, Hatley. I oh. think one or both of Gust, Gustard or Borthwick have to go. I think Borthwick has to go. Why Why Borthwick? Because Borthwick, Borthwick's, um, Borthwick's record has been incredible. Like what he's done with, like, with Japan, with, with their, their set piece and their scrum and the way they got that clean ball, and the way maybe this is Hartley or not, but England's line-out has been, has been faultless pretty much, hasn't it? Yeah. Hmm. And look, the problem the Lions had in 2005, for example, is their line-out completely went to pot in that first test. Like, completely went to pot. They were, like, ma- making the calls up on the day because they, they thought they'd been cracked. Is that so, right? Yeah, because Shane Byrne was hooker. And they had the, the first try that... Oh, it might have been Chris Jack, I'm, I'm guessing now. The, the scored. Shane, Shane Byrne overthrew it. And there, there was a lot of chat afterwards that... that, the, that they thought the Kiwis had cracked the code and they were all over the place. So Borthwick getting... The Lions have to start with a set piece to function off. That's how they won the third... The third test in Sydney with the one in 2013 was based upon the scrum. The whole first half in that third and final test was the Lions winning scrum penalties, half-penny kicking them, and then the Lions built a buffer to, to cut loose in the second half. But the Lions have to go there with a the mentality to scrum and have a solid line-up. That's got to be a focus. They've got to try and do something in a small, small space of time they can they can make into a weapon. And I don't see that as an amazing um, running game or a counter-attacking game. I think that's got to be a set piece. Borthwick's interesting because he's done really well in Japan. And he's gone straight to England and he's done pretty well again. But how much of the quick scrummaging is down to Jones? Because he's so canny. As a second row, do you really have the tools available to engineer the scrum and to, to get those sort of things right? And I'm not entirely sure it is Borthwick that made Japan successful. Maybe it is in the line out, mm. but the scrimmage not so certain. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have, I don't, didn't really follow Japan and how they were going until the World Cup, so that's quite hard to say. But I just think, I think Borthwick's done. Look, Eddie Jones has been has has his messages from the top have all been just work, work wonders with England, but those coaches on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. I mean, you know, Gustard, England have had a couple of, of quality defensive efforts, especially that second test in Melbourne. But I think, I think you'd be mad. Who's, who, who goes as forwards coach if, if Borthwick doesn't? Oh, I don't know. It's not Robin McBride. No, I mean, sure. it's got to be Borthwick. And just because, and, and we, we, you know, in, and Steve in the, in the media, you know, he, he, he keeps his cards very close to his chest, to put it lightly. I mean, he, he's, hard, he, he's hardly throwing you know, fireworks around in press conferences. But you know, that, ultimately, he's a brilliant... It seems to me that he is technically uh, a, a, a once-in-a-generation coach from what he's, what he's done so far in his short time. Yeah, I, I have heard that his attention to detail and just how much he studies uh, line-out play, that kind of mm. thing, uh, is second to none. But I've is also it, heard the same thing about Jones. Jones is very, very demanding of his coaches. How, how are the Lions going to beat New Zealand? Like that's got to be the focus. And you know, trying to play like New Zealand, not a start, not not a starter. Yes, they can try and take a template from one of the countries, but which which they did with Wales in 2013. But ultimately, 
they might be able to find a vulnerability in mauling and scrumming potentially mm. um it's a long shot but that is that not the the answer and mm. then you've got to you've got to get your best forwards coach and your biggest and best set of, biggest and nastiest set of forwards and try and take oh. the kiwis on and oh, well. have Farrell kicking goals or half penny kicking goals suffocating defence bit of magic out wide I'm not sure I mean it's such a such an unlikely uh, difficult you know well, I, impossible in the first place I think the key to unlocking the All Blacks is going to be discovered very shortly and I, I can't say exactly what it's going to be the only reason I say it's going to be d- discovered is because there's a lot of very intelligent people watching how they play and trying to fig- figure it out but if I was a betting man the defence that's going to beat the All Blacks is not the defence that's going to shut them out. I don't think it's possible. I think it's almost a attacking strategy, which is, yeah, they're going to score. If you can limit that, that's great, but we're going to have to outscore them. And that's the only way that the All Blacks are going to be beaten. Now, if the Lions can discover that formula before they go over, they've got a chance. It, I suppose the real question is, will anyone discover that formula before the Lions go over? And, and will the Lions have the sufficient pace and skill man for man to do that against the All Blacks I yeah. mean like, we're, almost, we're almost going back 10 years to 05 when Woodward tried to like recreate his 2003 team and try and bully them which they did to good effect in 2003 so yeah I mean maybe maybe Northern Hampshire probably should have moved on past the sort of trying to dominate them in the set piece but I just struggle to see how how if New Zealand score four tries the Lions are going to score five yeah I think that's the only way that you can beat New Zealand I don't think it's possible to shut them down completely because they spread the pitch so well. All the provinces play in pretty much the same way. Uh, which, yeah, yeah. So maybe a Saracens type team can do it. Mm. But again, but then England haven't really, because I thought for a time, England with Gustav defence coach, Eddie Jones' Saracens experience, I know it was, it was before like the Venter revolution, but I thought for a time England might play, you know, good at fullback, Farrell, Wigglesworth, nine and 10, and try and play that Saracen style with the Saracens forwards. But they haven't at all. England England still play quite a simple a simple game plan, but they definitely don't play like Saracens. Yeah, and the Gustard defence is not the same defence that Saracens use. Is it not? Not exactly, no. Well, for a start, it concedes, concedes a lot more points. Right, right, yeah. So, uh, but where can we find you on social media, Chris? Uh, chjones9 is my uh, Twitter. Excellent. And hopefully, sometime during the season, we'll uh, have to get you back on again to catch up. Yes, that'd be good. Enjoyed enjoyed the chat. We could have we could have chatted for longer, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh what were we on ten past ten past eleven at night. Seven. Uh, I probably should give and, me a go for a couple. Yeah, yeah, and an hour and a half into a chat. But absolutely, you're always welcome back. Good stuff. Good to be on. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.